you think of Civil War surgery, you think of the screaming or groaning patient and the unsanitary conditions and the surgeon sawing frantically away. Was it really like that? Our guest says no. We'll ask more of Michael A. Flannery, editor of Well Satisfied with My Position, the Civil War Journal of Spencer Bonsall, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hey, how you doing? Educational videos, top quality, right here. You'll never hear anyone selling education on the street. But with free family learning programs, you can get the education you need. Call 1-877-FAMLIT-1 for information on free learning programs. 1-877-FAMLIT-1. Check it out, check it out. Your GED right here, guaranteed, ma. Come on, check it out. Free family learning programs from the National Center for Family Literacy. Brought to you by the National Center for Family Literacy and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael A. Flannery of the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where he has edited Well Satisfied with My Position, the Civil War Journal of Spencer Bonsall. It's the journal of a hospital steward and pharmacist with the Army of the Potomac in 1862 and 1863. And uh, Michael Flannery has also written a book called The Civil War Pharmacy, which uh, has led us to a very interesting discussion in the last segment about what it was that uh, hospital stewards and uh, surgeons and and medical personnel in general could do in the Civil War to uh, alleviate suffering and to cure diseases. And in particular, we were just uh, discussing uh, surgery and the use of anesthetics. And, Michael, you made a really interesting point that that the Civil War validated general anesthesia as a medical technique, uh, that it wasn't widely used before, but... uh, as you said, there were 9,000 documented cases and probably many thousands more undocumented ones Correct. where it worked successfully in, in, in the surgical setting mm-hmm. uh, so that uh, the dispute disappeared. I mean, it seems in retrospect, uh, you know, of course it's a good idea, but uh, your point that people argued against it on not only medical grounds but theological grounds is really uh, fascinating when you consider some of the debates today about various procedures that are being debated that may one day seem uh, seem obvious to us. Well, medical ethics questions are ever present uh, today and uh, and yesterday. And, and that uh, I, you know, I would not have thought of anesthesia as such a question, but uh, uh, you know, if, if God wanted people to fly, we would have had wings. Airplanes are wrong. If if He wanted us not to suffer pain. Uh, he wouldn't have given us pain. Anesthesia. Well, there were even early regimental commanders who actually refused uh, to allow their men to undergo general anesthesia because they felt it was unmanly, unsoldiery. Wow. That, that's, <laughs> that, that's a hard officer to serve under. That, did, that didn't last too long. That, that's pretty tough, I would say. Wow. So um, uh, you were describing, you gave a very vivid word picture of the, the impression we all have, uh, commonly have, of, of Civil War surgery. And you point out that it's not accurate. In fact, the soldiers were, were more likely anesthetized than not. Um, but, uh, but the point about the unsanitary conditions certainly applies. The, the germ theory was not understood at that time. Oh, absolutely. And an uh, important point related to that is a comment that was made by uh, 
Dr. William Keene. Uh, Dr. William Keene was a would become uh, in the latter part of the 19th century a very very famous American surgeon. He started his career as a a surgeon, uh, I believe, a contract surgeon for uh, the uh, medical union medical department. And uh, reminiscing years later, he made an, uh, what I think is an important and interesting point. Um, he said that because so many, uh, at least early on in the war, because so many of his colleagues uh, came in as assistant surgeons with a medical education that was highly didactic. In other words, it was it was basically classroom lecture and recitation. Uh, little to no actual uh, patient interaction, no clinical experience. These young men come in um, and they are placed in positions to give care to men in combat situations. And so what happens is, is you get many of these boys that are brought back from the front with uh, all kinds of shattered limbs, um, everything from mini balls to shrapnel. And uh, he made the observation that it was his opinion that many men died not because of too rapid or a too great of a willingness to amputate, but uh, a, a too much timidity with regard to amputation. And he talks about these young surgeons looking at these men in these various conditions and sort of having these rather nervous discussions about whether they should or shouldn't uh, amputate the, the arm or the leg. And nine times out of, the, out of ten, he, he suggested, they all agreed that they would hold off and wait for the senior surgeon to make the final decision. Well, what that meant was, in the meantime, uh, this uh, man may have been lying with that wound for 24, 48, maybe even 72 hours. At that point, when amputation was done secondarily, after they had been brought back to the, to the field hospital, um, the beginnings of hospital gangrene were already setting in. So it's too late. And it's too late, exactly. So at that point, when they would cut off the arm and the leg, the, the man was already in a weakened condition, and his chances of, of survival were extremely um, uh, less than they were uh, when, they, uh, when they had done the, uh, the amputation in a very, uh, a very proactive manner. Uh, shortly after the wound had occurred. Um, so what would happen is they would develop hospital gangrene, which was, quite frankly, pretty much of a death sentence. You would get pyemia, blood poisoning, and uh, basically die from that. But the point is is that, that William Keene made the observation that it wasn't amputations that killed these men. It was delayed amputations that were killing so many of these men. Let me ask about uh, homeopathic medicine. That uh, was that theory around at the... Very much so. And, and were there hospital stewards who practiced? Well, tell us what it is, and, and were there stewards who practiced? Homeopathic medicine was started by a German physician in the late 18th century, not the 19th century, late 18th century, um, a German by the name of Samuel, Samuel Hahnemann. 
and its basic tenet was minuscule dose and a, a rather um, unique um, theory that like cures like. Um, that gets kind of complicated, um, but a lot of people correlate uh, homeopathic medicine with botanical medicine. It's true, homeopathic medicine did use botanicals, but it also used minerals as well. It, it's, it's really hallmark features was this, notice, uh, this notion of like cures like. And they had a Latin phrase called similia similibus curantur, like cures like, and uh, the idea of minuscule dose. Now, in the Civil War, uh, these, uh, not only homeopaths, but there was a whole group of botanical practitioners called eclectics, physiomedicals, Thompsonians. They were systematically uh, barred, uh, or they tried to bar them, from taking the entrance exams for assistant surgeons to serve uh, in the Union Medical Department. The South was less was less restrictive in that regard and was more willing to allow sectarians uh, into medical practice. Now, I, I would think the homeopathic remedies would be useful in that if you're going to give somebody you know, mercury or opium or morphine or something, if you can give a tiny, tiny dose instead of a huge one, he'll probably not die. Well, that's right. And, and, and throughout the 19th century, one of the, the, the hallmarks of, of homeopathic practice and one of the reasons it was so popular was that they could statistically prove that if you take their set of patients and compare them with an equal set of patients that were treated by regulars, um, the homeopaths always did better. Well, the reason the homeopaths always did better is they were giving minuscule doses um, of these of these uh, of these uh, medicines, while the regular uh, practitioners were often giving massive doses, and in some cases, quite frankly, um, for the from the homeopathic, uh, not from their standpoint, but certainly looking at it from the outside looking in, a homeopathic that is going to give you a tiny, 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 minuscule dose of something is basically think about it, it's letting nature take its course. Uh, with the plus a placebo, I mean, they're, they're yeah, sure. You think you're getting something? Absolutely. Uh, in comparison to a massive dose of calomel that would have you wrenching your guts in short order. Right. It would have to work. Um, and the light cures like. You mean if someone has a fever, then then put them by the fire. Um, well, this was a notion that specific medicines that would cause symptoms to appear when you are well. Ah would cure you of those same symptoms when you were sick. They would say it's sort of the same principle of vaccination, where you give a, an attenuated dose of, uh, let's say, you know, the measles virus in order to prevent the recurrence of a serious form, or what they used to do, for example, with smallpox. And, and they did have vaccinations uh, they did. at that time. They did. So, so the principle is understood. Right. They did. And I'd, did vaccinate. I, I suppose one of the interesting things about studying this is trying to maintain uh, an appropriate detachment. Uh, presentism is a danger in any historical study where we think sure. uh, you know, we know more than they did back then and we're smarter and better and so on. And uh, you know, the more you seriously study history, the more you... you divest yourself of that feeling but looking at, at pharma 
pharmacology in particular, we really do know more. Mm-hmm. And it must be hard sometimes to avoid feeling that these people you're studying don't know what they're doing. Well, what you have to understand is these these surgeons and assistant surgeons weren't fools. No. Um, they were doing the best that they could with the knowledge they had at the time. And many times were very keen observers at the bedside. And while from our standpoint it seems like they were relatively helpless, they, they could, with their various remedies, manage symptoms. And for their time, the best that they could do was manage those symptoms. And you have to understand that those were the challenges that, that they faced. The one remedy during the Civil War that really did work and that was known to be effective against a known disease is quinine. And quinine was known to be and still is effective against uh, malaria. Well, on that positive note, uh, unfortunately, we'll have to come to an end because we're out of time already. But uh, I want to say again that our our guest today, Michael Flannery, has written uh, uh, a very uh, substantial volume, The Civil War Pharmacy, that talks about many of the subjects we've discussed, as well as edited a very interesting journal of a Civil War hospital steward. That book is called Well Satisfied with My Position, The Civil War Journal of Spencer Bonsall. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Jerry, thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.